Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we began our coverage of the testimony of Ronnie Crosby, a lawyer and former law partner of Alex Murdoch. In this installment, we continue our review of Mr. Crosby's testimony. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It is the afternoon of February 7th, 2023, day 10 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, Prosecutor Creighton Waters was questioning Ronnie Crosby, a friend and former law partner of the defendant, about his personal relationship and familiarity with Alex Murdoch and his family. During this testimony, both Mr. Crosby and Mr. Murdoch appeared to become visibly emotional. As we begin today's coverage, the emotional atmosphere in the courtroom remains, and Waters moves on to asking the witness about his experiences on the day that Paul and Maggie Murdoch were killed. Do you remember June 7th, 2021? I do. Did you see Alec earlier that day? Can you ask that again? I'm sorry. See the defendant any at any point during that day that you recall? You know, I, I don't recall whether I saw him at the office. I was um, had been in a, a trial in Columbia that settled. It was a couple of week trial and it settled on Friday afternoon. And I probably know I came to the office to dig out some stuff, but uh, it's fishing season, and um, I promised my son as soon as I got out of trial we'd go offshore fishing. So I would have left work early that day to go get the boat prepared to go fishing. So I, I don't remember seeing Alec that morning or the office. I could have, but it would have been, I, I saw him later that night, yes, uh, sometime around 11 p.m. Before we get there, were you at home at that time? Yeah, I was at home. We would just got finished getting the boat ready. You know, I, I, as, as a matter of fact, and by way of example, uh, we had invited Paul to go fishing with us the next day, and he, he had to work and couldn't go. My son had called him about it, you know. It was, you know, uh, I think we had just eaten supper and, you know, sitting there looking at weather and looking at all the things you do before you go offshore. Did you get a phone call? Did you get a text? My wife got a phone call, I believe, from Randy's wife wanting my partner, Mark Ball's wife, Lisa's phone number. She's a registered nurse. And it, it, it was sort of a quick phone call. She gave it to her. I don't know if Christy just couldn't get it at the time. And, and. At some point after that, I called Randy and asked him, you know, what was going on. And I don't remember his exact words, but it it, it, it was something about Maggie and Paul being shot. When you heard that, what was your reaction? I, I guess the best to describe as shock, alarm. Um, I immediately told my wife I had to go, and, and, and I, I got in my vehicle and, and started headed to 
Moselle. Did you get there? About what time do you think you got there? Um, I did get there and I arrived at, uh, I'm going to say somewhere on one side or the other of 11 o'clock. Did you go to the residence or did you go to the kennels? Well, when I got there, I could see the lights. I didn't know where to go, but when I got there, I could see the, the, the lights at the kennels. And I was familiar with Moselle, having been there many times. Um, and, and so I went to the lights. You could see there, there was law enforcement lights, uh, maybe a could be called in fire and rescue, but it, it was obvious that's where you needed to go. So I came in the main gate and turned right on what used to be a runway and went straight to the uh, kennels. Um, did you get out of your car? I did. Did you talk to anyone at that point? I'm confident that my partner, Mark Ball, was already there. Um, Alec was there, and I know I, I spoke with both of them. Were Maggie and Paul still there? Yeah, they're, they're, Maggie and Paul were there. Did you talk to the defendant at any point that night? I did. How late, how long did you stay at Moselle after that first time you arrived after Maggie and Paul's work? We stayed uh, outside and at some, at some point, um, I, I'm going to say we stayed, I stayed until about 3.30. Uh, it just seems we were standing around we, uh, back at, in the house and the, um, just like we didn't know what to do or what to say, and, and I knew that Ellick was going to have a long few days, several days coming up, and I was like, guys, we're not doing any good here. Let's, we need to all go get some sleep, and, 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 and you know, so we can uh, deal with tomorrow. And um, I think I was the first one to leave, and I almost feel like uh, everybody else pretty much left in the period of time after that. But I, I you know, but I know it's the first to leave, and I think it's around 3.30. Creighton Waters next segues to a line of questioning regarding Mr. Crosby's interactions with Alex Murdoch in the days and weeks after the murders. Did you return to Moselle the next day? I did. Did you have conversations with the defendant the next day? Yes. Over the course of the night of and the next day, did you have conversations with the defendant? Did he either tell you or were you present when he related to you his activities the night of June 7th, 2021. Yes, I gained an understanding of uh, the events of, of that night over multiple conversations and, and some sometimes perhaps just questions because, I mean, without being a lawyer, you would want to figure that out and, and, and being a lawyer and, and, and just having something so horrific, we wanted to contribute anything we could to help figure out well, who, who, who did this? Who did it? And what did Alec tell you about his activities that night? He told me, uh, and when I say me, there may have been multiple people in these conversations. I mean, there was, we were all back at the house at Moselle providing support for, you know, our friend who just lost his family. And that he worked, and, and I'm somewhere 5.30 to 6 had left work, that he went to Moselle, that Paul had come home from work, and that they uh, rode around, and then at some point they went back to the house and had dinner, um, and Maggie was, was there, my understanding. And then after dinner, that Maggie and Paul uh, 
went to went outside and and and, and to the dog kennels, and that he sat on the couch and and, and fell asleep. And, and that would have been around eight o'clock that he sat on the couch and ultimately fell asleep. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Prosecutor Creighton Waters continues his direct examination by asking Mr. Crosby to clarify exactly what Alex Murdoch said he was doing on the night of the murders. He said between 8 and 9 o'clock he was asleep on the couch, or he was at the house. He said he, uh, I took it that he laid down on the couch, maybe watching TV, and fell asleep. And then around 9 o'clock he uh, woke up, and then uh, uh, somewhere around 9 o'clock he went to uh, back to Barnville, to Alameda, to uh, check on his mother. And what did he say after that? He did after that. Well, he said he laid um, on the bed with her. He didn't give a time, but that he laid there. Uh, I took it. He was just sort of laying there to comfort her because I understood her condition. And then he said that he came back to Moselle and that he went to the house and that when he got to the house, he, he discovered that Maggie and Paul were not there and that he then got back in his car, or his Suburban, which was an office-issued vehicle, and, and, uh, and he drove down to the kennels, and there's more than just kennels there, I think y'all have seen some, maybe sheds there. Um, and he, um, he discovered Maggie and Paul's bodies. Did he say whether or not he had gone down to the kennels with Maggie and Paul before he left to go to Almeida after 9 p.m. That came up in one of the conversations, and he uh, specifically said that he did not. He did not. He did not. I'm going to play for you what's been admitted into evidence as States 297. I want you to listen to it and tell me if you recognize any voices on this video, please. Creighton Waters then plays a cell phone video recorded by Paul Murdoch moments before his death. As we have played the audio of this video in prior installments of this podcast, including episode 843, we offer this brief synopsis instead. Paul Murdoch's hand opens a kennel cage. He enters the cage, where there is a large brown dog. We hear Paul telling the dog to get back. The camera records the brown dog's tail as we hear Paul say, quit it Cash, and come here, Cash, to the dog. Next, we hear other voices in the background referencing another dog named Bubba. The first is a female voice, presumably Maggie Murdoch's, saying, quote, hey, he's got a bird in his mouth. Then we hear another male voice appearing to express his displeasure at what he sees by lamenting, quote, Bubba. Next, Maggie says, it's a guinea. And then we hear Paul's voice say, it's a chicken. We next hear the other male voice shout, quote, Come here, Bubba. Come here, Bubba. Seconds later, the video ends. 
After the video ends, Prosecutor Waters follows up with Mr. Crosby. Did you recognize any voices on that video? The three voices on that video are the voices of Paul Murdoch, Maggie Murdoch, and Alec Murdoch. And how sure are you? I'm 100% sure that's whose voices are on that, the audio there. Prosecutor Waters moves on to ask Mr. Crosby about the personal dynamics within the firm Peters, Murdoch, Parker, Eltroth, and Dietrich, or PMPED, in which he and the defendant were law partners. Is this a uh, law firm pretty close-knit? Yeah, we're, we're very close-knit. Uh, a group of lawyers, um, I think we, we have a very family-like environment with our staff as well as the, the lawyers are all, all very close. A lot of us do and still do, you know, a lot of activities together. Our families grew up together in a, a, a great, a great ex experience work, working with these guys. Did this, uh, these murders of Maggie and Paul, did it send a shockwave through the law firm, greater family? Well, yes, it, 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 it did. Just beyond the, the horror and disbelief, we... We, did, we didn't un, have an understanding. I mean, every uh, staff had a general sense of insecurity and fear. We had to take a lot of security measures because we, we did not have an understanding of what the possibilities out there could be. And then this horrific loss of, I think, Paul had, uh, you know, the kids, Maggie, uh, would come up to the law firm regularly, you know, maybe need to use a computer or just to see Alec or whatever. So... And it was as much of a shock as you could imagine. In the wake of this tragedy, did the law firm family rally to the defendant's aid? We did. We were there uh, every day for the rest of the week. And as you already know, Mr. Randolph passed away in the wake of this. Uh, so it was a really bad week where um, the Murdoch family in particular, but all of us needed to be together to uh, support each other. Waters next begins a line of inquiry about how the tragedies in the Murdoch family impacted the investigation into financial irregularities discovered at PMPED. A brief reminder, the prosecution asserts that one of the defendant's primary motives for killing his wife and son was to divert attention away from his fraudulent activity and instead to garner sympathy from his co-workers and others who were investigating his criminal acts. With all of this strategy and, and the support and the outpouring and everything going on, uh, did you have any discussion about what to do about the Ferris fees, or did was there a discussion to that this can't be the time to bring this up? The, the only discussion w w w that I recall was, Ellie told you they were in trust. Let's don't. There's no way we're going to talk about money in this. And, and we had no reason to not believe that. Uh, I wasn't aware of, of some of Jeannie's conversations. You know, I was aware that Ellick told her they were in trust. Uh, I, I trusted him, and uh, I said, let's just leave it be. Um, just not something that you would talk about as money in the wake of such tragedy that had gone on uh, the week of June 7th, including the loss of uh, Mr. Randolph. At some point in July of 2021, did it come to your understanding that at least the firm had heard from Chris Wilson's firm that supposedly those missing fees were in his trust account? 
that was reported to me. I did not look at the email, but it was reported, and, and that was even further confirmation that we didn't have an issue because we had worked on many cases with uh, Mr. Wilson's law firm, and um, if he's said it, another lawyer who's a friend and colleague said, I've got the money, then it wasn't something to be concerned about. Waters pauses this line of questioning and revisits the witness's relationship with Paul Murdoch. Before I get to ask you this, um, you said that you had developed a relationship with Paul, is that right? Yes. Did you eulogize Paul at his funeral? I did. You and your son like to hunt and fish and do outdoor things with Paul? We did. And that's how you got to know him well? Well, uh, you got to understand that even like when we go to legal conventions, a lot of time we take our kids with, with us. And I, I was just around Paul a lot. It wasn't just hunting and fishing, but uh, he pretty much had free reign of my property. Uh, but he would always tell me, Paul was a very polite young man, and uh, he wouldn't just go even though he could. He would always let me know, um, and 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 you know he killed a lot of his first deer on our property, and and you know just got to see him grow up. Did uh, Paul have a shotgun he favored, to your knowledge? I would see Paul with a um, like a twelve gauge Benelli Super Black Eagle. Um, yeah, I've seen him with that a number a number of times. Um, did. Uh, Paul occasionally liked to hunt hogs. There was a period of time where he was obsessed with it. He had dogs and, and, and then, uh, those 300 blackout with thermal scopes and you know he would he would do it and I love for him to come to my property to do it because anybody uh, has ever seen what hogs do to property they're, they're a nuisance and so it was I was happy for him to come and shoot them. And he used what gun for that? Well you know in the early years he used a 300 a lot and then they got where they were catching them and killing them with knives and stuff like that so they, they you know the hog hunters do it in different ways but the 300 blackout i think was usually accompanying them in the aftermath of the murders did you have any conversation or were you privy to any conversation in which alec talked about the family 300 blackouts well the the day after were, I, I, I saw the uh, casings that night and thought that they were 223s. And I re when I found out the next day from somebody with Carlton County, one of the guys I knew who was there, and there were actually 300 blackouts. You know, we started inquiring of uh, where the, Paul's and Buster's 300 blackouts were, were located. And I remember asking um, Alec about it, and he, he said that one of them was in the room and that uh, he didn't know where the, where the other one was. Did he mention a third one at that time? At, at some point he, he did. That there was a, say, go ahead. He said that one of them had gotten stolen or misplaced, um, which if it was misplaced, that would not seem odd to me because Paul was pretty good about, he would sometimes leave his guns at my, my place um, and then he had bought a replacement at some point in time. I don't, I don't recall the dates on, on any of that. Did he tell you what happened to the replacement? No, I, I assume that the replacement was, that they still had the replacement. Um, I, I never heard anything about anything with the replacement, just that they had a total of three. And I remembered that um, Mr. Benfield had built those rifles. 
Creighton Waters next returns to asking the witness about missing attorney fees from litigation in a matter involving plaintiffs whose last names were Ferris. Testify that after uh, moving into July and August, uh, you'd gotten an email or at least been informed that there had been uh, some representation that Chris Wilson had those, those fees, correct? That's correct. Moving into September of 2021, did you have any uh, trial or anything going on that you were actively involved in at the time? At the end of August, uh, early September, I was uh, getting ready for a, a products liability trial over in Dorchester County that was going to last several weeks. Uh, did you receive any communications from your firm about any issues regarding the defendant? We were doing pre-trial uh, motions, things that you do before trial starts. There's a lot of work that gets done by the court. And so we were taking care of a lot of things that would keep the jury from waiting around uh, during the trial beforehand. And, and September 2nd, we were over arguing uh, motions and taking care of pretrial matters. And so I had, when I got out of court, I saw that I had miscommunications from one of my partners, Mark Baldwin. And I called him and he said, we have a problem. And I was like, what? And he said, you have to come now. And I said, I'm just walking out of court. I need to go home and eat supper. And it's not on my way. And he, would, he didn't ever tell me what it was, but he said, you have to come now. And I could tell an urgency. And so he told me where to meet him, and that would have been in Cummings, South Carolina, at my partner Danny Henderson's place. And which was not on my way home, but he was so insistent that I went there, met. When I got there, uh, Danny and Mark were there um, waiting on me. And ultimately, what was your discussion? I was giving a, a folder that had paperwork in it, um, and that paperwork consisted of checks both front and back, and I was asked to uh, review them. And were those the, uh, what's been called the fake forge checks? As discussed in previous episodes, Fake Forge was an entity named by Alex Murdoch so that banks would confuse it with a real company called Forge Consulting. The defendant created bank accounts in the name of the Fake Forge entity in order to fraudulently divert funds away from the PMPED firm and their clients and into his own personal bank accounts. I believe the Fake Forge checks, there was not all of them that Ms. Seconder went over, but I believe that there was. Um, I could probably call the names of most of them that were there. Uh, I know it was Anderson, Bush, uh, Moore. There was about five or six of them, and I believe they had a copy of the uh, Ferris check there too. Ferris check? Yes, and I'd sat for a minute and reviewed it. I think Danny said, you're going to need a drink. And so... Did you have a drink? Yeah, ultimately more than one. The gallery chuckles during a brief moment of levity, and with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we continue our review of the testimony of Ronnie Crosby. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.